This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity Church. My name is Zach Lutz. I'm director of family and youth ministries here, and I'm so glad to be with you again, continuing our sermon series through Acts. Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 16. Uh, But I wanted to start with this story, uh, this kind of news report of this story, like a newspaper clipping. And so I was just going to read this section here. Man, 91, dies waiting for the will of God. This happened in Tupelo, Mississippi. Walter Houston, described by family as a devoted Christian, died Monday after waiting 70 years for God to give him clear direction about what to do with his life. He hung around the house and prayed a lot, but just never got that confirmation, his wife Ruby says. Sometimes he thought he heard God's voice, but then he wouldn't be sure, and he'd start the process all over again. Houston, she says, never really figured out what his life was about, but felt content to pray continuously about what he might do for the Lord. Whenever he was about to take action, he would pull back because he didn't want to disappoint God or go against him in any way, Ruby says. He was very sensitive to always remaining in God's will that was primary to him. And as you probably guessed, the story is fake. Uh, It comes from one of those uh, mock Christian news sites like the Babylon Bee, if you've heard from them. Uh, And it is meant to illustrate by exaggeration some of our concern with knowing God's will. And I do actually think that that is a question that like both intrigues and haunts us all. Should I date or marry this person? Should I take this job? Should I work in this kind of business? Should I move on from this place? Should I study this or that? Should I send my kids to this school? Even what church should I go to? The question of knowing God's will is deeply ingrained in us, and I kind of wanted to ask the question of what motivates my concern with God's will. Why, Why am I right... Why am I concerned about God's will for my life? And I think that there's two areas that I tend to see. Um, At best, I'm rightly concerned with my relationship with the Lord. So if I could say it this way, in my effort to put my life into subjection of the Lordship of Christ, I'm worried that in my arrogance, I would not heed actually what he wants and just do whatever I want. That's at best. At worst, I look at God's will as a magic eight ball or kind of pagan gods, like fatalistic. If you remember on Disney's Hercules, you know, it's like this is God's, God's got this will for your life, but it's kind of secretive. And if you, if you make some wrong steps, you're going to be outside of that forever. That's at worst, which is why a preoccupation haunts my soul some about God's will for my life. Now, I do want to say that I think this passage today is going to give us some principles about how to discern God's will. But I also want to be very clear that it's not going to give us all the principles, nor is it necessarily going to address every situation. But I think that this passage gives us some really good principles. But before we get to our passage, I'd like just a brief review of where we are in Acts. So if you remember, Jesus ascended into heaven and left his disciples with this task to take the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. 
He sent them the Holy Spirit, which empowered them to do this. And then we see the unfolding of them going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth. We see the conversion of Paul, who once persecuted the early church and then now is the one receiving persecution for supporting and proclaiming this new kingdom. And in Acts 15, right before our passage, they have the Jerusalem Council, which is basically all of the early church leaders coming together to answer the question about whether Gentiles needed to follow these Jewish cultural marks. And if you remember, Pastor Jeff talked some about this last week, and their answer was no. Gentiles do not need to follow these. And so we're following Paul, and he's about to start his second missionary journey. So just to keep this in mind, he's already an established, authorized witness of the gospel for the early church. His voice was heard at the Jerusalem Council, and this is Paul's second missionary journey. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to start in Acts 16, verse 6. Acts 16, verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A Macedonian man was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now at this point, I'm actually going to skip to verse 25. So he ends up in Macedonia, has some conversations with some people we're going to talk about a little bit later, uh, and that actually gets him in trouble and he's in prison. So verse 25. About midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This is the reading of God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So in entertaining this question about what God's will is for our life, or being able to discern God's will for our lives, I think this passage can teach us some basic principles about how to go about doing that. And the first ones that we're going to see happen right off, but I'm going to give a little bit of preference, preface here. So Paul, mind you, is coming out of this council of all of these churches, right? And he is already an established missionary, 
So he sits down with his companions, and he goes, hey, guys, like, we've got this opportunity. Uh, we're now like, taking this gospel to the Gentiles in a new way. Let's plan out this journey. Let's decide where we're going to go. And part of their route includes Asia and Bithynia, these places which are a little different than what we would consider today, but this is where they planned to go. And you'll notice that in verse 6, it says this, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they attempted to go into Bithynia, beginning of verse 7, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. You see, the first thing that Paul has in his missionary journey, after this immense amount of planning and preparation, and no doubt collecting funds to be able to do some of these travels, and expecting and writing to people in these cities that, hey, I'm going to show up to you soon, for some reason, Luke does not tell us in the book of Acts why, he's not permitted to go. His plans are canceled, ruined, shattered, and the entire missionary effort is redirected. So the first basic of discerning God's will, first basic principle of discerning God's will that we can see in this passage is that God continues to lead through closed doors. And I think we struggle with that on a number of levels. On the one hand, there are things that we deeply desire for our lives that God shuts the door to. And we're mourning the loss of that. There's also times where we can't even see which door. There seems to be like five open, and we're like, I don't even know which one I'm supposed to go through. It's like, this is super, you know, I've got this option, this option, this option, this option. And so these, when we, tr when we try one, and it's closed, or we get a little bit in, and we feel like we failed, and we've ended up on the outside of God's will, we have this crushing idea that somehow we are outside of God's will. And that's not how Paul takes it. They continue their journey to their next thing, and they wait upon the Lord. Closed doors for us, although difficult, and possibly even as a result of our own sin, does not mean that God has closed it in displeasure and in punishment, although it may include some of those actions, but it doesn't remove the fact that he's still guiding you somewhere. So the first basic principle that we can see is that God leads through closed doors. The second basic, basic thing about discerning God's will concerns the following verses in 8 through 10. If you'll look with me there, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia, which is Greece, modern-day Greece, so a Greek man was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Greece and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, it says, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
So again, a little bit of context. Paul, this authorized witness for the early church in the first century, gets a vision that he supposes is from God. And his response is not to just drag everyone with him, but actually to have a healthy amount of self-suspicion about his own interpretation of this vision and include his companions in understanding what God's will is for them. Now, on a really basic level, we need to have a healthy amount of self-suspicion of what we think God's will is for our lives. And this includes hearing the voice of God as well, which I'm going to get to in a second. But I think even on a more basic level, sometimes we just kind of walk through life as like, well, I understand that God wants me to do X, Y, and Z. And our encouragement here is that even Paul had a healthy enough self-suspicion, a healthy self-suspicion to say, hey, brothers, help me understand this. And this word concluding means that they're, they're taking you know, disparate parts of information, probably the fact that doors had been closed somehow, probably this vision, as well as maybe other information that Luke doesn't decide to tell us. And they say, yeah, actually, I do think God is taking us to Philippi or to, to Greece. And so they decided to go. On another level, though, um, I have many dear brothers and sisters who have what they have said like extraordinary communications with God. And although I have not had any of those experiences myself, I wouldn't be so arrogant as to deny that those exist. We have plenty of examples in Scripture of how God communicates with his people. However, I also want to be clear that some of the most severe examples of spiritual abuse are perpetuated by those who have a personal communication from the Lord. So we can take a somewhat innocuous example of uh, the Christian breakup. And the guy saying, you know, like I was praying and I was laying my relationship before the Lord and I just felt the Holy Spirit leading me away from you. Now, that betrays um, a sort of cowardliness uh, to embrace our own um, ability to make decisions. And so to hide behind God's will as if we could determine it that way. And of course the Holy Spirit cares about your relationships, but what is the other person supposed to respond to that comment? It's a little bit to a lot bit manipulative. How can they challenge God's will? And although this is a somewhat innocuous example, I think we all know, have heard, and maybe some of you have experienced the abuse and manipulation that can happen from those who do not have a healthy self-suspicion of personal communications they may have received from God. Now, what does it look like to have a healthy self-suspicion? I think on just a really simple level, God has given us the church. And if church for you is a place where you come and you hear a message in order to apply it solely in your own life to discern God's will for your life, you kind of check in and check out as fast as you can, then you're probably not having a healthy enough self-suspicion of what you think God's will is for your life. God has given us the church community 
so that all of us with healthy self-suspicions, not that we know the answer for everyone's life, but we use our, in some sense, communal wisdom of different life experiences to maybe point out things that we're not seeing about our understanding of God's will for our lives. People who know you well enough to know what your deepest desires are, to know how painful that closed door is, to challenge or maybe even to encourage you where you're like, well, I just don't know. Maybe they're like, actually, I think you should. We need each other. And we need to know each other really well to be able to do this. Paul himself does this. So the first thing, first basic principle we see about discerning God's will is that God can, can and does lead through closed doors. The second thing is that we need to have a healthy self-suspicion about our own interpretation of what God's will is for our life. Uh, the third thing that we're going to see involves Paul's expectations. So, again, coming back to the story a little bit, he's had this vision of this Greek man, right? Saying, come over here to Greece and help us. So he has this vision of a Greek man. But if we continue, and this is not actually printed in your bulletin, but if we continue to the stories in the middle, I summarized it a little bit when we read through it, but Paul on his travels, ends up in Philippi. He's there for some days, as we're going to read, and he interacts with a woman named Lydia, who we're about to read about in a second, uh, also a slave girl who's possessed by a demon, and when he casts out the demon, that's how he gets in trouble and thrown in prison. So, he's still in Troas. He has this vision of a Macedonian man. This is his destination. This is where he believes that God is calling him to go, and now he's had a healthy enough self-suspicion and his friends have confirmed it, and he's going. He's like, I'm looking for this destination. He arrives in Philippi. They're there for some days, continuing in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatria, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. So, here's what's happening. Doors have been shut in Paul's face. Missionary plans ruined. Extraordinary vision happens. It's tested. They decide to go to Philippi. They're looking for this destination of a Macedonian man or its interpretation thereof. And they find in a city, and one response could have been going outside of the city and seeing a group of women where they expected to be worshiping and be like, Oh, it's a group of women? Yeah, the Macedonian man can't be there. Next, like, I'm, I'm on a mission. What we see Paul do instead is do Paul things. Paul, although he has not yet arrived at his destination, continues to be faithful to God's calling and his gifting along the journey. He speaks not only to Lydia, but then also interacts with this demon-possessed slave girl, and then ultimately this Philippian jailer. I don't know if Paul ever knew when he arrived at the place he was supposed to be. Macedonia is a big place. He started in Philippi. Maybe he's still kind of wondering, like, am I, am I, like is, this, is this where I'm supposed to be? But regardless of how Paul felt at the time, he continued in faithfulness along the journey. And that's our third principle, 
for discerning God's will. Our calling is to be faithful along the journey, even if we're not sure we're at the destination, or even if we are at the destination, to continue in that faithfulness. And I think that this has important implications for us at Trinity. You often hear Ronnie say things like, there's no wasted days in Puerto Rico. A lot of us want to count the days, and he's like, no, no, no. Like, God has you here for a reason, and it's for the blessing of you and your family and your neighbors and your community in this island. And God may also take you away from here at some point. Some of you are here in Puerto Rico, and you know that Puerto Rico is your destination. Some of you are like, I, man, it's so good to be here. Some of you are here, and you know that your destination is somewhere else. You know that God is calling you somewhere else, that your time here is limited. And whether you are at the destination or along the journey, you're calling with Paul, basic principle of discerning God's will, is to continue in faithfulness, continue worshiping, continue confessing your sins, continue in fellowship and prayer, continue utilizing your gifts in the service of his kingdom wherever you are. So we've seen these three basic principles of that God can lead through closed doors, that we need to have a healthy amount of self-suspicion, and that we're supposed to be faithful along the journey. But if we're being perfectly honest, this is actually way more difficult than it sounds. Any of us who have lived the Christian life for any amount of time know that just closed doors, for instance, not to mention submitting your interpretation of God's will for your life for feedback from brothers and sisters, um, or continued faithfulness through difficult times, but closed doors in and of themselves. So failed business ventures. Being unaccepted to a program that you were hoping to get into. The loss of a loved one. Where plans and lives are drastically changed. Where does Paul get the resources to be able to do these seemingly simple things? And where can we find it? I think Paul got it because he knew his God. He knew the character of who God was. And he knew that God had invited him into the family business, as it were, of declaring Christ's kingdom on earth. And he knew that no matter what, even if he fell into sin, he could repent and be in right relationship with his father. And that his father was directing all of the cosmos towards a particular end. That God has burdens on his heart and that he sees people and he sees things that Paul could have never seen. So even though he is redirected from things of where his heart wanted to be, he can still go, but I know who God is. Paul had experienced it intimately. Jesus said that he came to seek and save the lost. Have you ever felt that you existed in the blind spot of God's eternal plan? That God's plan is way bigger than just you in, in your life? That you're kind of, you know, just middle of the road, going about your day, you're just like, I don't really know how I fit into this situation. I don't really know what God is doing with my life. 
I would encourage you to reflect upon Acts 16 and see that God redirected possibly one of the most powerful missionary movements in Christian history away from their original plan towards three people who were not on any of their radar in a city that none of them cared about. God saw Lydia, God saw the slave girl, and God saw the Philippian jailer. Paul, despite all the closed doors, could know that the character of his God was such that no matter where he found himself, even if he was being stoned, like we talked about last week, that he could be sure that God was doing something that involved what God does. On a personal note, like on an individual note, that's, that's really powerful. And if you do stop to think for a second about what God had to direct for him to find you throughout 2,000 years of Christian history, God is big enough to direct 2,000 years of Christian history and see your life in light of it. God sees you. On kind of a corporate note, if the early church had blind spots, you better believe that we do too. They had people who were not on their radar that existed outside of what they saw, and yet God's heart burned for them. And closed doors, healthy self-suspicion, and faithfulness along the journey often direct us towards seeing a little bit more of how God sees it breaks down those things where we are a little bit blind to the people that live around us. A little bit blind to the injustice and the way that sin has corrupted everything in this world. And by God's grace through these areas, we're, just, we're able to see just a little bit more. That we might be delighted and surprised by the people who God sees that we would have never seen or thought about. May we be a people who can see those who God sees. May we be a people who so experience the character of God that despite closed doors and despite difficult faithfulness along difficult journeys, we would be the people who would follow basic principles in following God's will. That we would be God's people. Would you pray with me?